Section 11 of The Princess and Curdie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lizzie Driver. The Princess and Curdie by George MacDonald. Chapter 17 to 18. Chapter 17 The Wine Cellar. He lighted his candle and examined it. Decayed and broken as it was, it was strongly secured in its place by hinges on one side, and either lock or bolt, he could not tell which, on the other. A brief use of his pocket-knife was enough to make room for his hand and arm to get through, and then he found a great iron bolt, but so rusty that he could not move it. Lena whimpered. He took his knife again, made the hole bigger, and stood back. In she shot her small head and long neck, "'seized the bolt with her teeth, "'and dragged it, grating and complaining, back. "'A push then opened the door. "'It was at the foot of a short flight of steps. "'They ascended, and at the top Curdie found himself in a space which, "'from the echo of his stamp, appeared of some size, "'though of what sort he could not at first tell, "'for his hands, feeling about, came upon nothing.' Presently, however, they fell on a great thing. It was a wine-cask. He was just setting out to explore the place thoroughly, when he heard steps coming down a stair. He stood still, not knowing whether the door would open an inch from his nose, or twenty yards behind his back. It did neither. He heard the key turn in the lock, and a stream of light shot in, ruining the darkness about fifteen yards away on his right. A man carrying a candle in one hand, and a large silver flagon in the other, entered and came toward him. The light revealed a row of huge wine-casks, that stretched away into the darkness of the other end of the long vault. Curdie retreated into the recess of the stair, and peeping round the corner of it, watched him, thinking what he could do to prevent him from locking them in. He came on and on, until Curdie feared he would pass the recess and see them. He was just preparing to rush out, and master him before he should give alarm, not in the least knowing what he should do next, when, to his relief, the man stopped at the third cask from where he stood. He set down his light, and on top of it, removed what seemed a large vent-peg, and poured into the cask a quantity of something from the flagon. Then he turned to the next cask, drew some wine, rinsed the flagon, threw the wine away, drew and rinsed and threw away again, then drew and drank, draining to the bottom. Last of all, he filled the flagon from the cask he had first visited, replaced the vent-peg, took up his candle, and turned towards the door. "'There is something wrong here,' thought Curdie. "'Speak to him, Lena,' he whispered. The sudden howl she gave made Curdie himself start and tremble for a moment. As to the man, he answered Lena's with another horrible howl, forced from him by the convulsive shudder of every muscle of his body, then reeled, gasping to and fro, and dropped his candle. But just as Curdie expected to see him fall dead, he recovered himself and flew to the door through which he darted, leaving it open behind him. The moment he ran, Curdie stepped out, picked up the candle still alight, 
sped after him to the door, drew out the key, and then returned to the stair and waited. In a few minutes he heard the sound of many feet and voices. Instantly he turned the tap of the cask from which the man had been drinking, set the candle beside it on the floor, went down the steps, and out of the little door, followed by Lena, and closed it behind them. Through the hole in it he could see a little and hear all. He could see how the light of many candles filled the place, and could hear how some two dozen feet ran hither and thither through the echoing cellar. He could hear the clash of iron, probably spits and pokers, now and then, and at last heard how, finding nothing remarkable except the best wine running to waste, they all turned on the butler, and accused him of having fooled them with a drunken dream. He did his best to defend himself, appealing to the evidence of their own senses, that he was as sober as they were. They replied that a fright was no less a fright that the cause was imaginary, and a dream no less a dream that the fright had waked him from. When he discovered, and triumphantly adduced as corroboration, that the key was gone from the door, they said it merely showed how drunk he had been, either that or how frightened, for he had certainly dropped it. In vain he protested that he had never taken it out of the lock, that he never did when he went in, and certainly had not this time stopped to do so when he came out. They asked him why he had to go to the cellar at such a time of the day, and said it was because he had already drunk all the wine that was left from dinner. He said if he had dropped the key, the key was to be found, and they must help him to find it. They told him they wouldn't move a peg for him. He declared, with much language, he would have them all turned out of the king's service. They said they would swear he was drunk. And so positive were they about it, that at last the butler himself began to think whether it was possible they could be in the right. For he knew that sometimes, when he had been drunk, he fancied things had taken place, which he found afterward could not have happened. Certain of his fellow servants, however, had all the time a doubt whether the cellar goblin had not appeared to him, or at least roared at him to protect the wine. In any case, nobody wanted to find the key for him. Nothing could please them better than that the door of the wine cellar should never more be locked. By degrees the hubbub died away, and they departed, not even pulling to the door, for there was neither handle nor latch to it. As soon as they were gone, Curdie returned, knowing now that they were in the wine-cellar of the palace, as indeed he had suspected. Finding a pool of wine in a hollow of the floor, Lena lapped it up eagerly. She had had no breakfast, and was now very thirsty as well as hungry. Her master was in a similar plight, for he had but just begun to eat when the magistrate arrived with the soldiers. If only they were all in bed, he thought, that he might find his way to the larder. For he said to himself that, as he was sent there by the young princess's great-great-grandmother, to serve her or her father in some way, surely he must have a right to his food in the palace, without which he could do nothing. He would at once go and reconnoitre. So he crept up the stair that led from the cellar. 
At the top was a door opening on a long passage, dimly lighted by a lamp. He told Lena to lie down upon the stair while he went on. At the end of the passage he found a door ajar, and peering through saw right into a great stone hall, where a huge fire was blazing, and through which men in the king's livery were constantly coming and going. Some also in the same livery were lounging about the fire. He noted that their colours were the same as those he himself, as King's Minor, wore but from what he had seen and heard of the habits of the place, he could not hope they would treat him the better for that. The one interesting thing at that moment, however, was the plentiful supper with which the table was spread. It was something at least to stand in sight of food, and he was unwilling to turn his back on the prospect so long as a share in it was not absolutely hopeless. Peeping thus, he soon made up his mind that, if at any moment the hall should be empty, he would at that moment rush in and attempt to carry off a dish. That he might lose no time by indecision, he selected a large pie upon which to pounce instantaneously. But, after he had watched for some minutes, it did not seem at all likely the chance would arrive before supper-time, and he was just about to turn away and rejoin Lena when he saw that there was not a person in the place. Curdie never made up his mind, and then hesitated. He darted in, seized the pie, and bore it swiftly and noiselessly to the cellar stair. CHAPTER Eighteen: THE KING'S KITCHEN Back to the cellar Curdie and Lena sped with their booty, where, seated on the steps, Curdie lighted a bit of his candle for a moment. A very little bit it was now, but they did not waste much of it in examination of the pie. That they effected by a more summary process. Curdie thought it the nicest food he had ever tasted, and between them they soon ate it up. Then Curdie would have thrown the dish, along with the bones, into the water, that there might be no traces of them. But he thought of his mother, and hid it instead and the very next minute they wanted it to draw some wine into. He was careful it should be from the cask of which he had seen the butler drink. Then they sat down again upon the steps, and waited until the house should be quiet. For he was there to do something, and if it did not come to him in the cellar, he must go to meet it in other places. Therefore, lest he should fall asleep, he set the end of the helve of his mattock on the ground, and seated himself on the cross-part, leaning against the wall, so that, as long as he kept awake, he should rest. But the moment he began to fall asleep, he must fall awake instead. He quite expected some of the servants would visit the cellar again that night. But whether it was that they were afraid of each other, or believed more of the butler's story than they had chosen to allow, not one of them appeared. When, at length, he thought he must venture, he shouldered his mattock and crept up the stair. The lamp was out in the passage, but he could not miss his way to the servants' hall. Trusting to Lena's quickness in concealing herself, he took her with him. When they reached the hall, they found it quiet and nearly dark. The last of the great fire was glowing red, but giving little light. Curdie stood and warmed himself for a few moments. Minor as he was, he had found the cellar cold to sit in doing nothing, 
and standing thus, he thought of looking if there were any bits of candle about. There were many candlesticks on the supper-table, but, to his disappointment and indignation, their candles seemed to have been all left to burn out, and some of them, indeed, he found still hot in the neck. Presently, one after another, he came upon seven men fast asleep, most of them upon tables, one in a chair, and one on the floor. They seemed, from their shape and colour, to have eaten and drunk so much that they might have been burned alive without waking. He grasped the hand of each in succession, and found two ox-hoofs, three pig-hoofs, one concerning which he could not be sure whether it was the hoof of a donkey or a pony, and one dog's paw. "'A nice set of people to be about a king,' thought Curdie to himself, and turned again to his candle-hunt. He did at last find two or three little pieces, and stowed them away in his pockets. They now left the hall by another door, and entered a short passage, which led them to a huge kitchen vaulted and black with smoke. There, too, the fire was still burning, so that he was able to see a little of the state of things in this quarter also. The place was dirty and disorderly. In a recess, on a heap of brushwood, lay a kitchen-maid, with a table-cover around her, and a skillet in her hand. Evidently she, too, had been drinking. In another corner lay a page, and Curdie noted how like his dress was to his own. In the cinders before the hearth, were huddled three dogs and five cats, all fast asleep, while the rats were running about the floor. Curdie's heart ached to think of the lovely child princess living over such a sty. The mine was a paradise to a palace with such servants in it. Leaving the kitchen, he got into the region of the sculleries. There horrible smells were wandering about, like evil spirits that came forth with the darkness. He lighted a candle, but only to see ugly sights. Everywhere was filth and disorder. Mangy turnspit dogs were lying about, and grey rats were gnawing at refuse in the sinks. It was like a hideous dream. He felt as if he should never get out of it, and longed for one glimpse of his mother's poor little kitchen, so clean and bright and airy. Turning from it at last in miserable disgust, he almost ran back through the kitchen, re-entered the hall, and crossed it to another door. It opened upon a winder passage, leading to an arch in a stately corridor, all its length lighted by lamps and niches. At the end of it was a large and beautiful hall, with great pillars. There sat three men in the royal livery, fast asleep, each in a great armchair, with his feet on a huge footstool. They looked like fools dreaming themselves kings, and Neela looked as if she longed to throttle them. At one side of the hall was the grand staircase, and they went up. Everything that now met Curdie's eyes was rich, not glorious like the splendours of the mountain cavern, but rich and soft, except where, now and then, some rough old rib of the ancient fortress came through, hard and discoloured. Now some dark bare arch of stone, now some rugged and blackened pillar, now some huge beam, brown with the smoke and dust of centuries, 
looked like a thistle in the midst of daisies, or a rock in a smooth lawn. They wandered about a good while, again and again finding themselves where they had been before. Gradually, however, Curdie was gaining some idea of the place. By and by Lena began to look frightened, and as they went on Curdie saw that she looked more and more frightened. Now, by this time, he had come to understand that what made her look frightened was always the fear of frightening, and therefore he concluded they must be drawing nigh to somebody. At last, in a gorgeously painted gallery, he saw a curtain of crimson, and on the curtain a royal crown wrought in silks and stones. He felt sure this must be the king's chamber, and it was here he was wanted, or, if it was not the place he was bound for, something would meet him and turn him aside. For he had come to think that so long as a man wants to do right, he may go where he can. When he can go no farther, then it is not the way. Only, said his father, in assenting to the theory, he must really want to do right, and not merely fancy he does. He must want it with his heart and will, and not his rag for tongue. So he gently lifted the corner of the curtain, and there behind it was a half-open door. He entered, and the moment he was in, Lena stretched herself along the threshold, between the curtain and the door. End of section 11